This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety 2024. Registration is now open for Safety 2024 in Denver. Join us Wednesday, August 7th through Friday, August 9th to connect with your safety community and get up to speed on the latest knowledge and innovations in the field. Learn more and register at safety.assp.org. A quick note before we begin this week's show, for those of you who listen on Google Podcasts, that application will be shut down in April of 2024, so we encourage you to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I am your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today for a conversation about how working backwards can help improve both safety and business performance. And uh, joining me for that, I am very happy to welcome back to the show, Pete Suska. Pete is principal at OPEX Safety. Pete, uh, how are you, my friend? Great to be talking to you. Welcome back. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excited for the conversation. Now, something you talk a lot about and you have talked about on this show is the focus in both safety and business on outcomes and how kind of shifting the focus, you know, more towards the process can, you know, help both improve safety and health performance as well as business performance. So I thought we could kick things off by talking about, you know, the importance of working backwards to address those safety and business issues and how an organization structure has so many impacts downstream. Sure. You know, I, I'm going to talk about working from the front to the back and the back to the front, right? Because kind of meet in the middle. But uh, the first article that I wrote for the PSJ back in 2018 was, it's bigger than safety always. And in that article, I had a figure of a relationship, the relationship between what I generically call culture, but really it's what I call operational organizational factors. It's really the kind of the, the setup and the remnant to organizational decision-making way up at the top of the organization. And then as those decisions are made, if those decisions are not properly balancing benefit and risk, you know, we're fo so focused on costs or revenue or, or whatever it is that we're not focused on something else and maybe because we don't see it, we don't understand it, uh, then that imbalance gets downstream into the way we do the business. What we talked about last time is process, right? And the interface between that and process is this management system layer. It's kind of like the Ozone layer, right? It's, it's there to protect us, and that's what it's for. It's there to protect us from harm coming through. And if your management system and systems, right, all across all of the functional expectations of the organization, i.e. quality and ethics and safety and all those things are not robust and are not talking to each other, then these things can sneak through the management system, that defensive layer, that hole in the ozone, if you will. It can sneak in to the way that we go about doing things and the way that we go about hiring and the way we go about procuring and manufacturing and providing service, all of those things. If those are imbalanced, then the potential for risk creation is built in 
to the way we do what we do by design. Not purposefully, but just a result, okay? And that ultimately perpetuates itself into risk, risk of upsetting a customer, risk of upsetting our workers, risk of hurting somebody, all different types of risk. And that risk that lives long enough, that's excessive enough, uh, that we're exposed to for long enough, ultimately creates events, outcomes, okay? And that's how it works. So if we're coming into this, chasing an outcome, and that may be harm or near harm, right? Then working our way back up, it's important for people to understand all of those things that are in play and what those things look like and should look like to not create that outcome. And that's what most organizations don't understand. They go down this trail using whatever method they use of, of chasing back a problem when they really don't know what they're looking for. And okay, there's lots of processes out there that have all checklists and things to look for, but that's not their organization. That's some generic list, okay? They need to know what things are in play and how they do it and how their, their organization is supposed to work to make balanced decisions, create balanced processes, checks and balances to make sure they stay balanced, and the management of uh, benefit, success, and failure before it actually happens. If you know that really well and you know what it looks like when it's healthy and you know what it looks like when it's not healthy, then you will know where to go to find the reasons. And I'll just tell you a story. About five years ago, a client came to me through someone else and they said, hey, this client's had a quality audit and they had this major finding that they didn't do a really good job or have a really defined process of doing causal analysis for quality, okay? And, and look, causal analysis is causal analysis, right? It doesn't matter if it's quality or ethics or safety or environment, right? Causal, same process. So I said, what do they need? They said, well, they need a process and they need help. I said, okay. So I went in there and I said, look, for me to help you with this, I need to speak to the management team. And, and I said to them, before I teach your people to tell you why you're having problems, I need you folks to understand the kinds of things they're going to find. And I need to understand whether or not you're comfortable hearing that. It's a really important step, okay? Because there's a lot of people downstream that don't want to go down those roads for fear of getting in trouble or saying something outside the scope of safety or whatever it is and getting to the real issue. The management team needs to feel, or you need to feel, that they're comfortable listening and hearing these things and acting on these things, understanding these things. And if they don't, well, you're not going to go. You're just going to keep hitting the wall, right? And so they did. And I said, okay, this class is going to take two days. And, and we did the class. And the first day of the class, I was teaching. Uh, what I did was we put every single function in that room and said, look, you folks are going to end up being a team. And this team is going to be designed to take and look at every single non-conformity, every single issue, and every single event with the same lens. Okay. Not a quality event or a safety event. 
you're going to be the experts that look at all the events. And the purpose of that is, is so that they can go back to management speaking the same common language about the common reasons, which most organizations are not doing. Okay. And they're not respected for. So I had to make that connection first. All right. Are you okay hearing this? Okay. Now I'm going to set you up to hear it. Okay. And then I spent day teaching them how the organization should work and function and how to make things right and how to design and how to do all of these things and how to check and balance and all that works. And three quarters of the way through the day, one of the guys said to me, he said, look, we haven't done anything out of this in an investigation. I said, you're right. I said, what I'm doing is I'm telling you where you need to go when something doesn't work right because now you know how it's supposed to work. And and that's what most organizations don't know. They don't know how it's supposed to work. They go right into, okay, let's go this route. Let's go that. Let's follow this. Let's check that. Let's, but they don't know where they're going. They don't know why they're going there. They're just looking for boxes to check, things to put in the report, you know? So you've got to set that up for work. That That's the important part of going backwards, if you will. You use the word imbalance. In your experience, where have you found that that imbalance exists within a lot of organizations? Or you know, what causes that imbalance and how can organizations go about, and I know we're going to get into this uh, more later, but how can organizations go about balancing things out? That is the question, right? Uh, so there's a lot of pieces to that. One, most organizations do not have a standard way of making decisions. They have priorities, they have values, they have policies. Like you go in the front door of company X and you look on the wall behind the glass case and there's six policies, right? And, and But nobody teaches people how to make decisions across the policies. They teach people how to make decisions vertically down the policy. So the safety people teach people how to make safety decisions. The quality people, right? See what I mean? But business decisions get made horizontally across the policies. So I've got to make sure that I'm balanced in safety, I'm balanced in cost, I'm balanced in, in, in quality. That's in ethics. It's a it's got to be a balanced decision. And to have that, you've got to have a process and you have to have min-max thresholds for each of those things. So somebody can say, yeah, you're in there. You're in the range, right? But there's no such thing. So now what we have is everybody out there kind of doing what they think is right. And that's all over the lot. There's a lot of variation in, in right, okay? And that's what creates the imbalance. Now, the other piece of this, and I do a lot of uh, what I call leader recalibration because, I mean, a lot of these leaders, the executives, were never taught how to integrate safety into decision-making, how to lead safety as part of leading a business and leading a balanced business. They're not taught that. And, you know, my, my dad used to say, you know, you learned it on the street. That's how they learn it. They learn it by being in a company or, you know, whatever it is. They learn it in their experience. They don't learn it in school. Okay. So now they're programmed and then they get out and in their experiences varied. And now they all come together in one company with a whole bunch of different perceptions and perspectives of how to do this. Finance is so much easier because it's, it's, it's a common language. Safety is not, okay? In most organizations, it's managed by a set of experience and perceptions, not, you know, an equation. 
And, and now, so you have these people making these decisions without one, having an understanding of what their role is in making decisions and two, how to balance that appropriately. When I spend time with executives, I focus, I strip away hazard and risk. Risk is where hazards get complicated. They get confused. Okay. And, and if you just stick to the hazard, hazards are executive decisions. Hazards are business decisions. When we, we see them as problems, the rest of the business sees them as values. Now, going back to balancing, who is balancing the value of the hazard, the business value of the hazard, with the fatality implication of the hazard when they're making that decision? Okay, I, I'll give you another story. In this training that I do, I have this process with a mezzanine, and I get the executives to tell me where the hazards are, and they list a whole bunch of fatality hazards, but they don't realize where they're coming from. And, and I ultimately say to them, what is the process reason for these hazards, the common process reasons? And finally, somebody will say, it's the mezzanine. And they'll say, oh my, yeah, you're right. I said, um, what's the business value of the mezzanine? I, I understand, we all understand the downside of the mezzanine now, right? Yeah, what's the business value? Because it's, it's got all of the tally hazards. If the mezzanine wasn't there, there'd be no fall hazard, no fall off the mezzanine, no fall off the stairs, no forklift, no raising a tank, nothing gone. Eliminate hazard, right? What's the value? And the engineer said to me, the value is I always put mezzanines and I always use gravity rather than a pump. I said, that's great. I said, did you see the downside of gravity? Are you responsible? For, I know you're responsible for the upside of gravity. Are you responsible for the downside of gravity? He goes, no. I said, yeah, there's the problem. I wonder if we kind of dive into some some more real world situations that people have encountered and to demonstrate, you know, the value of working backwards to, you know, address these kind of hazards and risks in, in different workplaces. Sure. I mean, I see, I see them all the time. And, and, you know, no matter where I go, whether it's, you know, somebody had a fatality or somebody had it, somebody told me a story the other day. I have I do this work for this very large manufacturing company, and they have this probably three million square foot manufacturing facility been around for a long time. That ultimately they decided to take and separate businesses in that facility. So now everybody's got their areas and their fences and their own rules, and and so now as that perpetuates, so we have our own storage, we have our own maintenance. So they used to have a cryogenic gas that they used for various manufacturing reasons. And uh, so instead of now having one big tank that everybody used and worked off the pipeline, we have a whole bunch of different tanks. Okay. So now you can see the failure modes are different with multiple tanks than they are with one tank. Right. So he tells me this story. He said um, a couple of days ago, the camera, we have, you know, some videos uh, in our facility. So we, we saw these gentlemen from one area come and take cryogenic gas from somebody else's area on second shift. I said, um, what do you think is going to happen to these people? What do you think is going to be the result of that event? He said, yeah, those people will get punished. And I, and I said, but do they see how these people were set up to fail? Is anybody looking at that? Because now, because we designed this separately, now everybody has to budget their own gas. 
and they have to make sure they have enough gas to produce on first shift and second shift. And they have to have a contingency for when they don't because they still have to produce. So you know what happened here? They ran out of gas. The supervisor or somebody there said, hey, look, we still got to produce. I'm getting measured on produce. Go find some. Do whatever you got to do. But the other piece of it is, is that we don't even think about is the safety hazard associated with them dumping out cryogenic gas from somebody else's tank. Now, if they got, you know, um, serious, uh, the similar serious implications of cryogenic gas on your skin, if that happened, we'd have a whole different conversation, wouldn't we? But see, we completely ignored the safety aspect of it because we're so focused on these are bad people, you know? And it's like, wait a minute. These people were set up to fail. And fail how? Fail production, fail safety, fail, right? All of those things. Why buy the same decisions? We like to feel like safety is embedded into productivity, but it's not. It's a, it's a choice. It's in parallel with productivity. And it quickly gets stripped off when we feel like we're going to get in trouble for not being productive. Because that's the thing that gets measured every single shift, every single day. Not safety, productivity. Okay, so if we've got to go faster, we got to do more productivity. Safety is easily shed because look, most of us in the safety profession are not taught to make productive safety or to make safety productive. As a matter of fact, we, by our upbringing, believe that safety should be valuable even though it's counterproductive. Which doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? We should be taught to make safety productive. And we're not. I mean, the, the most productive safety I think you can see out there is probably ergonomics. Because ergonomics and being productive and efficient, or they work hand in glove, you know? Uh, whereas machine guarding, no. You know, a lockout tagout, no. It's not productive. It's counterproductive. So you can see where the fork in the road is, you see where the decision is, and you can see what the implications are immediately of making the wrong decision, and they're not safe. And with like the cryogenic gas example, have you found that, I mean, it usually begins and ends with, as you noted, the guys say, okay, those workers are going to get punished. Do you see in those situations, is that what usually happens, or do organizations maybe have an aha moment like, okay, Let's look at the system that allowed this to happen instead of looking just at what happened. Do they take a look upstream in a lot of these cases, or is it just, okay, you did something that you weren't supposed to do, we're going to reprimand you and leave the same system in place? That goes back upstream to, you know, the, the dynamic of the culture. And the dynamic of the culture is a process and systems thinking culture then I think most times they don't, it's not ready, fire, aim, okay? It's ready, aim, fire in a system process thinking company. Whereas in a reactive organization, it's ready, fire, aim, okay? Because they're, they're, they're reacting, okay? And when you react, you tend to want to just blame, right? It, it's a nasty human reaction. What are you thinking, you know? And, and it, this whole kind of line of, of management thinking we've set people up to succeed and they purposely failed us. We all make mistakes. 
Look, I mean, all of you executives, did you follow the speed limit when you came in? No. Okay, is it clear? Yes. Right? It's easy? Yes. No, you didn't follow it. Why? Right? It's the same thing. We had other reasons. We had other things in front of us. And so I think that it's impacted by the culture and the way we set up leaders and the way we set up the organization to say, this is what we do and this is how we do it. Everybody's a check and balance on that. No, we don't go out and hunt down people. We realize that we set people up to fail and when they fail, we realize we did that. We, the organization, did that. And if you have that as your overriding principle of leading the organization, then you realize you got to take a deep breath. You got to take a deep breath and step back and say, okay, wait a minute. How did we put these people in that situation where they felt like they needed to do that? Something I was thinking about as we were talking is something run seems to run through all this is that, you know, the decision makers aren't integrating themselves enough on the front end or the back end. They're not thinking about the downstream impacts of these processes they're putting in place. One of the things that I find when I do this executive recalibration stuff it, it is the folks that, that are high up in the organization that have these ultimate responsibilities for, for the deployment of, of the values, you know, whether it be financial or, or quality or whatever it is don't know how to measure their success out there in the field. And that's where their decisions should be measured. That's where their metrics should be calibrated to, is it did it work for the people who make the last decision? You make the first decision and you're calibrating your success on your decisions. You should be calibrating it on their decisions. And, and I will tell you, most of those folks don't know what the result of their decisions even look like. And so as part of this whole dynamic, what I do is I get them aligned with their reality. One of the examples I use is, is a, that mezzanine example, but I also give a procurement example. And that is some procurement person is sitting in an office, their primary job is what? Reduce costs. Okay. And how do I do that? Well, I, I try to figure out how to negotiate a better cost structure for whatever it is we're using. And hey, you know, I noticed um, we use 10 five-gallon containers of, of substance X in this process. And I just, we're able to negotiate a much better price for a 55-gallon drum of that stuff. So, you know what? I, I have the authority to buy a 55-gallon drum. Um, my job is to cut costs. I buy a 55-gallon drum. That 55-gallon drum gets shipped to the loading dock of this operation. Who's never seen a 55-gallon drum before? How are they going to move it? They're going to move it. Not the right way. Not the right way. They're going to be productive. Right? We set them up to fail. We set them up to get hurt. We set them up to spill the drum. We set them up with maybe more flammable storage in an area that they should have. Whatever it is, nobody is seeing that in that original decision. And nobody's going out to check on how organizationally balanced that was, which it wasn't. Anything else you'd uh, like to like to add uh, about you know, the importance of working backwards, improving your organizational structures as we wrap up? Well, you know, 
I've talked about a lot of these principles. I've talked about kind of looking at things through a different lens, right? The organizational process lens versus just the safety lens. But what I realized when I started writing these articles and, I, and I'm saying to myself, like halfway through, I said, oh man, Pete, you're going to be giving these people all of this great information and they're not going to have the authority, the ability, the, the, the respect in the organization to actually get somebody to listen to them. So I wrote an article just on that, which was how to build your standing in an organization as a safety professional, how to build your standing in an organization beyond safety, because that's desperately needed. I will tell you right, right now in today's world, and I'm with lots of safety professionals out there in, in the operation, this challenge in safety today is not as much a technical one as it is an organizational one. And we're not doing a lot to change that in the safety profession. Okay. We're working on it, but but people aren't talking about it like they talk about technical issues because it's difficult to tell somebody, hey, look, I am not respected. My company doesn't listen to me. Uh, I'm not appreciated. I'm not positioned at the right level, whatever it is. And, and we in the safety profession need to work on that. You know, if you're in that situation, and I know a lot of you out there are, no matter what level you are in the organization as a safety professional, you've got your organizational challenges. And Well, uh, thank you so much again for coming on, Pete. I always really enjoy talking to you. These are great examples for safety professionals to think about and apply at the organizations, you know, to, to try to improve, you know, the structure and the culture they have to, you know, uh, work to make their workplaces safer. So I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave a review to help others find the show. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org. We'll see you next time.